0: Brought to you by Brass and Unity. We make wearable conversation starters. Our new buddy check packs are available now. Grab one and check on one of your closest buddies. They may need it now more than ever. Go to brassandunity.com, use the code UNITY and get 20% off. And let's all heal together. And brought to you by Combat Flip Flops. Bad for running and even worse for fighting. Combat Flip Flops are your ticket to the unarmed forces by providing you with military inspired quality footwear for men and women. To help support the podcast and in support of women in developing countries, head over to CombatFlipLops.com and become a part of their unarmed forces today. Be sure to use the code UNITY at checkout and get 25% off. And brought to you by GFDA. Good fucking design advice. The voice in your head and the foot up your ass. GFDA makes prints, drinkware, and apparel for people who want to do their fucking best. Go and use the code UNITY and get 10% off now on anything on their site, including our collaborative product, Fucking Help Somebody. And brought to you by Daisy Mae Hat Co., the custom hat company based in Nashville, Tennessee. They make custom one-of-a-kind hats from wide-brimmed fedoras to cowboy hats. All of their hats are 100% beaver felt, and it's the highest quality hat you can get. They also have the coolest shirts ever. You can use the code BRASS at checkout for 15% off your entire order. Go and check out daisymayhats.com. Embrace the fever. Live the dream. You sound
1: as amazing as you do in person. Aw, thanks. (laughs) Welcome to the show, Duck. Kate Pitt. I love your name because it's so similar without two different letters. It fucks me up. But sometimes when I get really, really ripped and I try to say your name, it takes me a long time.
2: I love it. You know, I think my entire life it's either been Kate Pate or Katie Patey, or like just any variation, like of, of those that people just can't say Kate just feels like incomplete for people a lot of times. So they'll throw Uh in the doc or they'll throw in the last name. And it's just like, I don't know. I'll answer all of it. <laughs> it's fine. You do
1: answered all of it, and it's because you have so many hats that you could answer too. We were just having this conversation. Um, for people who don't know who you are, um, do yourself a favor. Familiar familiarize yourself with this woman because she is a hitter in in a way that I was trying to articulate before. It's hard to come into a community like this, uh, veterans versus responders, people who have maybe had more trauma experience and not only immerse yourself in amongst everyone, but in a way that you don't feel intimidating, you feel accessible, you feel like anyone can have a conversation with you about anything, whether it's psychedelics, whether it's your... um, your actual background, which is your PhD. And is it neurophysiologist, you're a neuro- neurophysiologist, right? Yeah. So, and then you, you also come in from the medical military side, which is really different. I, you don't often see that. So you feel like someone and you feel like someone that I could really learn from, but also you articulate in a way that my listeners can also resonate with and learn from.
2: Yeah, well, I, I appreciate that. And that's sort of, I mean, I, that's my dream is to be able to have people feel that way because I want to have these conversations and I want to be accessible. And, um, you know, I think that we all have something to learn from one another and to be intimidated by other people's achievements or just, you know, whatever box they check on paper I think does all of us a disservice because again, like it doesn't really matter what your credentials are or aren't. We we all have something to learn from each other. And I think maybe one of the reasons why that comes across is I've always tried to be a student before being a teacher. And I'm always trying to learn from everyone around me. And I bring a curiosity to 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 the human being, it's like, you know, there's, there's so much that we all hold and that we all carry and we all have incredible stories. And I, that to me is exciting. Every time I meet a new person, I really want to get to know the human behind the, the labels that, that we all show up with and present first. So maybe, maybe that's what it is, but I don't know. I'm just grateful to be in this space and for, for people to feel that way.
1: Yeah. And it's fun because I'm going to, I'm going to explain how I met you in person, because that'll kind of give context <laughs> to why I speak about you the way I do. So I met you at a black rifle coffee party at shot show, and I had heard about you from people around and then they all had said, you're going to meet, you got to meet this girl. You got to meet her. You got to meet her. You got to meet her. And when I got a chance to meet you, I think it was Nicole who introduced us in tear, mm-hmm. I was so thrilled because you lived up to the hype in like all, <laughs> all ways. Um, so that's why I say you're accessible is because you're at SHOT Show and (laughs) we're just having a good time. And I don't feel like, you know, it's a a judge setting, but Mm -hmm. you do have so much to talk about, but I do want to kind of figure out how you got into this because it's not like you decided to go to college and then just go work at a doctor's office. You decided to like, I'm going to do like a decade of school and put (laughs) everything into this. So are you from... A background where your parents were doctors or educators?
2: No. uh, So my mom was a nurse. Both of my parents ended up going and getting uh, associate's degrees. So no four-year college, no graduate school in my family. Um, Excuse me. Um, And... I think b- my mom being a nurse definitely helped with my interest in medicine, but I, w- I was always really intrigued by the human body and medicine and trauma medicine in particular when I was a kid. And I didn't really want to go in and, and, you know, go into medicine and become a doctor. I was just too interested in too many different things that focusing on the one, like that one thing just didn't seem like a good fit. So I would just go with, you know, ran with science and it was like biology and physiology, zoology, any of the ologies I was just fascinated by. I had, like, I'm not even, I'm not even shitting you. I had, like, um, neuroscience for dummies when I was, like, 10 years old. Like, I was that level of nerd. <laughs> I was, like, all, all about the brain, like, just reading textbooks. My friends are, like, I mean, I certainly was outside playing all the time, too, but, like, when I did read, like, s- stuff like that, I would totally just go right for, the like, the hard sciences. Uh, I was a weirdo. But, it um certainly paid off, I guess. I was
1: going to say, I feel like it paid off. All right.
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh, but we, came, I came from a military family. So my, most of the men in my family served in some capacity and okay. two of my three brothers were in the military and that was always part of our like family culture. So it just was something, even though we weren't, my dad wasn't you know, in the military when I was growing up, that was all before we were all born. But like, it just was a part of our family culture. It seemed like that was just something we talked about a lot. And um, I, I personally, you know, I didn't join, I didn't really think to join the military myself, but I was always a supporter of it and supporter of the service members and, and veterans that we would come across. But it was never a huge part of my life, meaning like, I didn't have a large group of friends who were either serving or veterans um, until it was probably into my career a little bit. So where I went with my career, I started kind of in the sciences and then ended up um, wanting to pursue uh, a, a PhD in neurophysiology. And it's kind of a long story as to how all of that happened, but um. I ended up just wanting to pursue more, more school. It was not really done yet. I was like, I don't want to be, I don't know what I want to do work-wise. So I'm just going to stay in school, continue to research, continue to study, work towards, you know, this stereotypical academic researcher thing, which didn't really fit, but I didn't really know what else to do. Um, But I was passionate about a lot of different areas of research. So I studied uh, respiratory neurophysiology as a grad student, which was basically like what is this connection between the brain and the body and the breath? Like, how does the breath influence physiology? How does it influence mood or affective state? How does that, how does your affective state influence your breath? Um, How does that all play into human performance and wellness? So I was really interested in that. Um, What year was that? What's that? What year was that? That I graduated.
1: No, 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 that you were studying the, the more of the brain body connection in the breath. Uh,
2: that was 06 to 2010.
1: Is that, is that a newer area
2: of study for. It's, it's really not. Um, we, it depends on, I guess, on the way that you look at it. So it's been studied. So the neural control of breathing has been studied for decades, um, for quite a long time. But as far as like the human component and the Mm -hmm. affective, like emotional influence on breathing, that is somewhat newer. That was definitely going on at the time I was studying and I was really interested in that. And that field has certainly picked up, Mm -hmm. um, especially with the increased accessibility for things like functional uh, MRI and us being able to image human beings who are um, you know, actively breathing or having an emotional response to something in a magnet, for example, we're able to see that now where we weren't in the past. So yeah, it's definitely a growing field and it is really fascinating. Um, but that that's, I was just interested in it because I was like, well, how, how can I learn about this to become better myself? Like how can I utilize this in an actionable way for my own performance, my own well-being? So you were,
1: you were coming at it from, a, you know, what can be an add to your life as well, because it seems mm-hmm. like know, knowing you now and understanding kind of what you have got into now and the way you are with yoga and breath work and mindfulness and all of this, it makes sense. But to see, to see you studying or someone studying it in an actual school and looking at it from a mind body connection and the breath, it's really fascinating because I haven't spoken to anybody who's really looked at it from the science side of things. You mm-hmm. you have the conversations in yoga, you, you do the breathwork yeah. classes and you do all of that, but there's, there's always science behind it, but you don't ever really hear about it in, in that mm-hmm. way.
2: Yeah, definitely. There is a lot there. People do. I think the one, the one thing that's maybe a blessing and a curse from social media is that a lot of the really difficult science and research has become more accessible. So people mm-hmm. are learning, but then you also have people who are like, throwing terms and you know things out there like they do understand the research or science behind it or um you know have a real like solid grasp of what they're saying and they really don't and so sometimes even like what they're saying may be slightly inaccurate and you know you just get this sort of community um perpetuation of of certain things that yeah for for better or worse it's good that people are interested in science and it's really good that people are learning about all the stuff that would traditionally be inaccessible or like only found in really boring dry journal articles so (laughs) it is kind of cool that we have that now
1: (laughs) colorful slides it works your (laughs) your pages is is amazing um, because it is it's broken down into colorful very beautiful slides and it's digestible. <laughs> it's shareable. It's learnable. It really works.
2: <laughs> Thanks. You know, I've been told by multiple people that I'm terrible at social media because they don't have like a standard template or brand. Like every post is so different. And I'm just like, you know what, this is what makes me happy. So I I'm can't, just I can't. Doing it.
1: it works. I don't care what anyone says. It works. You don't have to look like everyone else. You're, you're, you're trying to put out information to individuals that is, like you said, often found in things that are really dry, things that mm-hmm. most people are not gonna sit or even have the ability to digest and really know what they're yeah. even reading. So I think yeah. your page is great and those people can suck it. Um, <laughs> so so where where did you go from there? You moved on from, from yeah. the breath,
2: what yeah. was that? So, so I was always interested in neurotrauma and I wanted to get more into that. And part of that was when I was in grad school at the University of Florida, we were looking at, not me personally, but our lab and other people that we worked with, we're looking at how TBI impacts breathing and and does it. And we don't really have a lot of information around that. We were kind of progressed from TBI into like spinal cord injury because that was a much more clear cut impact on the respiratory system just due to like, depending on the level of injury could be affecting like the phrenic nerve, for example, which goes to your diaphragm and innervates your diaphragm. Um, so we were looking at, people were looking at that, but traumatic ba- traumatic brain injury was always interesting to me, even outside of its impact on the respiratory system. And when I went and did my postdoc, I um, <laughs> I wanted to, I had some really good opportunities to do postdocs in places that I really didn't want to live. Um, and my choice to leave Florida, I was like, I need to go to the mountains. I don't care what I'm doing. I just need to get out there. And so I moved to Colorado Um, But I actually took an opportunity to work with a really cool lab in Denver, and um, I ended up switching a bit from the respiratory neurophysiology side of things to look at, to become a more well-rounded researcher. And I went and did things that were totally outside of my comfort zone just to learn. So I studied everything from cancer and radiation biology to arthritis, to lung infection and COPD and like everything in between. But one thing that I decided to to focus on while I was there was traumatic brain injury. And so I worked with uh, Candice Floyd at the university. She's at the University of Alabama, Birmingham at the time. She's now at the University of Utah. But I worked with her for um, kind of a whole summer as like a temporary postdoc kind of situation and learned traumatic brain injury and spinal cord injury methodologies from her. And then was studying that back in Denver in my lab there and was fascinated by that. And we were looking at basically ways to, we were looking at different drugs for neuroprotection. So how can we protect the nervous system, whether it's the brain or spinal cord from the massive inflammatory cascade and reactive oxygen species that occur following any kind of neural injury that lead to, as you well know, these secondary, uh, injuries that then cause the long-term symptoms that people deal with when they're like, you know, it's been two years since I've had my TBI and I still am not feeling okay. I'm not feeling normal. I'm not feeling like I was prior. And those long-term changes that people experience are due to those secondary injuries that happen after that neuroinflammation occurs. And so we were like, okay, how do we control that? We know the downstream process is super complex, but like if we can stop it early, then we don't have to investigate each little mechanism down the road, we can just stop it upstream early. And so uh, we had a lot of really promising um, candidate drugs that we were working with. And um, it was really so it was something I was really passionate about but the, like I said before the academic setting is not for me like I hate being in a lab working with like pipetting tell. all day long like you know like I have this really funny picture of me like in a lab coat with these goggles on and my my lab tech was like Kate you look really unhappy and I was like yeah and I turned to him and I had like the grumpiest face and he he snapped a picture of it. and I was like this encapsulates Perfect. me in a lab I don't belong." Um, no. So I wanted to get out of that, even though I was passionate about the research. I was like, I need to to move on. And I missed teaching. And right around this time, there was a really cool opportunity to teach at the medical school in Colorado. They were looking for a professor of physiology. And that was what I was. Mm -hmm. I mean, technically. So I was like, hey, let me let me go interview for this position and um, see if there's a way to get back into teaching. And I got the job and moved from the research academic uh setting to an, another academic setting, but it was a medical school. And I was able to teach the really cool, detailed, like nitty-gritty science stuff that I loved um, to people who actually cared about it. So that was really fun for me. And I kind of made that jump away from research into another academic setting. And then that was kind of what set me towards the path that I'm on now. Um, which I can get into if you yeah. want me to continue. Yeah, yeah. No,
1: I'm list. I'm, I'm like, I'm like in. I'm super in this right now. Okay. So sometimes
2: I hear myself talk, and I'm like, maybe I should stop. You <laughs> should theory. never stop talking. You have thing. You have. <laughs> so here's the thing.
1: So many people talk and talk and talk, but they never say anything.
2: Mm, yeah.
1: So you're not one of those people. Please <laughs> okay. continue.
2: Okay. Thank you. Um. So, yeah, so I was teaching at the medical school, loved it, loved being a part of that environment. Um, and at the, so let's see, this is probably my second year into teaching. And um, one of my coworkers was like, hey, Kate, my son-in-law works for this company here in Colorado. And um, they just got a military medical grant uh, from the Department of Defense. It was, you know, small business grant and it was a, a medical issue, but the- <laughs>
1: You know what? That's
2: right. we, we all have dogs.
1: Uh, we all have dogs here, and everyone who's on the show always has a dog. It feels like in the background, so it's fine.
2: Yeah, my dog is kind of an asshole, um, sweet and adorable, but also an asshole. He's like a grumpy old man who yells at everybody to get off the lawn. Yeah, like that's that's him. That's my dog. That's,
1: that's okay. That's just me. So yeah, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. At least that's just your dog. Yeah, not your personality. Oh.
2: Yeah. So we, uh, so I met this company and um, I met with the company and they were like, look, we're an aerospace engineering firm and we don't understand medical stuff. And we want you to, um, Miles, come here, bud. We want you to come in and help us like consult with us and help us understand these physiology problems. So I was like, yeah, that sounds awesome. My brother was a medic in special operations at the time. And so I was like, this is super cool because I can talk to him and say, hey, what, you know, how would you use this? Or is this a product that makes sense to you? Or, um, you know, how do you address these issues and what kind of tech do you need for the battlefield and whatever? And so um, I was like, man, this is really cool. And this was my one of my brothers that of the three, I was probably closest with growing up. Um so I started consulting for the company and then there was a full-time opportunity. So I jumped from the academic setting into industry. It was a startup, small business, um, t- you know, totally different world and started working on this project and it was specific for eye trauma. So uh, anybody in the military knows the you know the, uh, saying or the phrase life and eyesight. So eyesight is a top priority for any kind of Uh, casualty. Like if you have this particular injury, get them out of there, get them to a hospital because like the consequences of not addressing it are severe. And um, there really aren't any options. It was this whole shield and ship don't touch the eye, just get them to a higher point of care. And as things shift and the battlefield becomes more and more remote, we lose the opportunity to have that golden hour where we can medevac people quickly to a hospital. Now we're, you know, small teams, remote areas, what can we create that is going to be beneficial for like a prolonged field care type of scenario? Um, And this particular product for eye trauma looked like it could be really promising to preserve tissue and prevent infection, prevent further injury, and at least buy somebody some time. So that way, by the time they actually do get Um, to a higher point of care maybe it's two three days later but all of the options are still on the table for them so this to me was like man this is so cool and maybe it's not the sexy topic that you know people think of when they think of like military medicine but like for people who have eye injuries this is critical and it's such a scary thing to have any kind of eye injury and think about maybe losing your eyesight so for the people out there who um, are injured this could be A matter of like complete change of quality of life for them. So Mm -hmm. I was really interested in that. And as I started to get into the job more, I started to see all of these other areas where we could apply better technology to address some of the problems on the battlefield. So that just became an area I was incredibly fascinated by and wanted to, wanted to help, wanted to make a difference. I wanted to create products where people like my brother could do their job better and, and have better outcomes for any of the casualties that they're treating. So that became my whole world. And through that, like working in that space, um, I started to meet so many more people in in the military, so many more veterans, uh, even first responders at the conferences that we were going to like SOMA or MHSRS. And, you know, I started to see that although trauma medicine is interesting and I'm passionate about it, there was this whole other side of what was going on in these communities that was the mental health side and people across the board were not okay. And a lot of my friends started coming to me because they knew that I studied traumatic brain injury and they were like, hey, uh, I don't know what's going on with me. I suspect it has to do with my TBI, but I'm fucking losing it. Like, I'm, I don't wanna to go to the VA or I won't, don't wanna go the normal traditional routes of care because it's multiple pills to address all these symptoms and it's psychotherapy. And I can't relate to my therapist. They don't, they make me feel worse. The pills are making me worse. The pills are making people suicidal and we're losing people who come back, make it off of the battlefield. And now they're taking their own lives here at home. And it became this overwhelming, like I felt so helpless when I started to see what was going on in the community. And I was like, I have to do something. I don't know, like I'm not qualified. I did not study mental health or psychology I don't know. I'm not a therapist or a counselor. I don't know how to do any of this stuff, but what I do know how to do is be a human being. And I do know how to explain what, what I know, and I can at least go study what's out there and try to explain it to my friends in a way that makes sense to them. And Mm -hmm. maybe that'll be helpful. And so that is kind of what pushed me in the direction that I'm working in now, which is like, you know, how do, how do I basically try to take all of the information that I can find and share it with people who need it in a way that makes sense to them so they can make better choices for themselves and have a good quality of life.
1: Great ideas. Start a podcast. Yeah. You should start a podcast. You're oh, fucking
2: God. brilliant. <laughs> I don't know why you wouldn't.
1: You're like yeah. the female Huberman, except I think you're better looking. That's on me though. <laughs> I think, I mean, I'm serious. Like what yeah. you do is so, is so needed and so necessary. And so you, you, it really, I, I just want to touch on this because I think it's really, um, really great. And it shows your character a lot when somebody really sees something as a problem and takes it personally. I mean, it's, it's really fascinating to hear you talk about your first position because of because of what it is, but also the access, the access you had to the military at the same time to be able to actually have a real conversation because most of the time when you're developing something or you're working on a project, that has to go through chains of command. It has to go down the line. You can't Mm -hmm. really talk to somebody that's in unless you have a close connection to somebody and get their opinion and get their advice. And so that makes me happy to know that that's actually happening because on the battlefield, sometimes, at least when I was in, there's always improvements that can be made. There's always improvements, always, always. But here's the thing. How often are they going to listen to the lowest rung on the totem pole? So when I hear other people taking that on personally, like taking that on themselves and seeing you go through this to get to the point of mental health, it's, it's really, um, it's a big thing because I think if we had more people that were interested in these topics and, not, And I think that most people are interested in these topics. Don't get me wrong. I think yeah. they don't think that they are intelligent enough to understand these topics. And that's really where you come in. And that's why I think you're so valuable. Um, I have a few questions about, uh, is it operator syndrome that mm-hmm. we're now we're calling it? Okay. So in yeah. Canada, they're starting to diagnose people with it. And it's just, I think there's been a couple, there's only been one guy that I know of and mm-hmm. i only know of him because my doctor was his doctor kind of deal okay. yeah and in canada their tbi diagnoses are very difficult and very hard to get and mm-hmm. people just aren't getting them they're getting ptsd and pts right. yeah and they're getting that like it's hotcakes right you know of yeah right. so TBI is seeing as that is somewhere where you were really started. Can you kind of walk through operator syndrome a little bit for me? So people can understand what that, the difference between that and say, PTS and PTSD might be.
2: Yeah. So operator syndrome, it's become a term that's been thrown around. It's technically not, at least not in the States. I mean, it's technically not an official diagnosis, meaning it's not part of like the DSM, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, it is a term that researchers have, used to encapsulate the collective of symptoms that a lot of operators experience just to try to characterize what's going on and to have some agreed upon terminology and where it came from. And I think the pu- the paper was published in 2020, if I'm not mistaken, but Chris Free and his colleagues um, put together based off of uh, a group of Of operators that they had all been working with a collection of symptoms that they were noticing were happening across the board and uh, traumatic brain injury was kind of the hallmark injury in this group and not to say that you it wouldn't like that somebody wouldn't also experience all the other symptoms if they didn't have a tbi but that definitely was a big part of this community and a lot of them i mean even in training alone you know anybody who's oh. been yeah you know it's like you're you're sustaining uh tbis not not like even overt ones although overt ones like very clear concussions or worse happen um, sometimes it's subconcussive blasts or even blunt trauma over time that just add up where your brain is like mildly insulted, but like, it hasn't really recovered before it gets hit again. Do you like, insult Ma- you? <laughs> I, know I you saw know. your face. I was like,
1: <laughs> was God, I was, word to use. <laughs> no, I just, I think that's brilliant because it's of- true. I'm just, I'm, I'm sorry. I've never heard, I've never heard that before. And I tried to hold that one in, but I'm not that good of a person. And I remember as you were saying it, it was like mildly insulted. I remember a moment when we shot the Carl G for the first time. Oh my God. Those. Yeah. Yeah. And my brain was mildly insulted. Yeah, but it yeah. really didn't like it when I started pulling the lanyard on the M triple seven. It was very insulted then. No,
2: I mean, like, yeah, I—I I definitely the goose is one of those that like people, I mean, and it would be how many times in a, in a given training session would that thing go off? Right. Like how many oh. times would the people in that immediate area have to deal with it? So like what I was saying before, it might be a mild injury, but like your brain is a little bit mildly insulted. <laughs> <laughs> and it hasn't gotten over that before right. the next thing comes in. And, and all of a sudden it's like, what the hell is happening? You know, what is right. going on? There's just, it doesn't, um, have the capacity to address the injury before another one comes in, but you know, that's, that is the hallmark injury. Uh, there's a, um, another paper that cites the operator syndrome paper that was published, um, called modern warfare destroys brains. Um, Kevin Trujillo, I think, uh, Ooh, I want to read that. This his last name um and another colleague and they published it basically to say that modern warfare the the hallmark of it is ied blasts or even in training you know you're having like flashbangs go off in really confined spaces yeah. and all of these things that we now understand can cause injuries and that is the hallmark of, of modern warfare is that that particular injury but that plays into this the symptoms that ha- that appear, people experience after a TBI play into the other symptoms that show up in operator syndrome. So you end up having like, for example, um, some of the things that are in there, like marital problems, you know, uh, family issues, sleep issues, uh, mood and cognition changes where you're kind of flying off the handle uh, hypervigilance um, addiction is a big part of it. Right. Like, and that's something where it's twofold when When your brain is injured, you are likely um, potentially inhibiting the uh, part of your brain that is sort of the executive functioning center. So the, the prefrontal cortex, where now all of a sudden, if that's injured or impaired in some way, impulse control is less effective. So for somebody to just be like, Oh, fuck it. I'm just going to go drink right now. Like, and every time you do it, that pathway gets reinforced and it's easier and easier to, to default to. So for people who are dealing with addiction, following TBI, part of that is because your injured brain now is less effective at being like, Hey, actually, do I really want to do this? let's think about it, let's pump the brakes instead of it just being on autopilot and then reinforcing an addictive pathway. But also, even if that weren't true, a lot of times people might end up choosing substances or any other form of distraction that can become an addiction, uh, like porn for example, or anything Mm -hmm. else, uh, because they feel so shitty, right? Like you're, you're like, oh my God, something's wrong. It's freaking me out. I don't know what's going on, but like, I have got to get out of this body to stop feeling this particular way. What do I know know that's going to distract me? I don't know. Maybe hookers and blow or whatever. Yeah. Like (laughs) whatever your thing is. Whatever your thing is. And and it's you know I'm I kind of make light of it, but it's true. And it's it's not to like downplay the impact of addiction, but it's like well, of course, it's to to normalize it and say of course, everybody's just trying to feel okay Mm -hmm. in their body and in their life. And when they don't, and they've been given no reasons as to why things are happening or what's going on or other tools for dealing with it. Well, what the hell else are you going to do? Like, what are you going to do? Of course, you're going to find something to make yourself feel better. And I want people to know that like, it's not an excuse. Like if you're aware of it, there's things that you can do to try to do better and to be better, but like, don't beat yourself up about choices that you made when you were injured and hurting. Like, right. We are all trying to do the best that we can. So that is something to be aware of too, with operator syndrome, that addiction can play into, to the symptomology. And when you have like, for example, booze, especially, you know, if that's a part of your life, well, your sleep's going to be even worse. Maybe it was already bad because of your TBI, but now all of these other things are compounding the effects on your family, on your sleep, on your health. Um, you know, your hormones get super dysfunctional, which I, yeah, that's a whole other topic. That's the that's
1: <laughs> whole, I want to get into that at some point too, because we just went through that with my husband, with his TBI yeah. and with mine. So this is mm-hmm. all something new that I'm finding really fascinating. And now I'm that person who, who calls up their friends and was like, Hey, Hey, do you have headaches?
0: Mm.
1: Hey, Hey, do you have stomach problems? Hey, do you have vertigo? Hey, tell Mm. me all these. Cause I want to know, because if I can see someone struggling with something, if it's not PTS and I know they've racked their brain a few times, Mm -hmm. I kind of go, okay, we need to have a conversation. And I I know what I know, and it's not very much, but I know enough to be like, hey, you should probably go get it checked because now I've been yeah. through the process. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. And, and you bring up a good point about PTS. Um, it, that can be another um, comorbidity with operator syndrome. You can see that. And I want people to understand something about that um, because if you have a traumatic brain injury or you have a background of chronic stress or childhood trauma you are more likely to develop PTS following some sort of traumatic event in your life because of the way that your nervous system is now wired. So if you are one of those people who develops it following a trauma of some sort, you're not weak. You're not poorly trained. You're not any of the things that people start to assume about themselves. Mm-hmm. It is literally your nervous system, the way that it was wired and set up because of all of the other collective things you've experienced in your life that are now creating this environment where if you experience trauma, you may go on to develop it where your foot is literally on the gas pedal of like your nervous system and sympathetic overdrive. And it's uh, a really scary place to be, but it doesn't. You're not. Uh, if you have operator syndrome, y- you you may not, and a lot of times you don't have. You don't see PTS, and part of the reason is because a lot of a lot of folks from that community will say that they actually don't feel traumatized by anything that they did, and the assumption is that you know from like from a psychologist standpoint, it's like, well, you were in combat, you must be traumatized, and a lot of these guys are like. Hey, um, I did a lot of stuff and I loved it. And I would go back in a split second and none of that was scary to me. And none of it was traumatic. And I really think that people need to believe them when they say that and understand it.
1: I went through that yesterday. That's why Mm -hmm. I'm laughing with a friend of mine, uh, Paul de Gelder. He's, um, he was an Aussie, uh, bomb clearance kind of guy. Yeah. And. He got attacked by a bull shark in Sydney Harbor and lost his arm and leg. Oh,
0: holy
2: shit. And,
1: oh yeah, he's a super he's the host of Shark Week. He's super Oh, friendly. right on, oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, so Bye. that's the robot man there, that's Paul. Yeah, yeah. Um, So anyway, we do these checkups just because it's like the only time we can have friendly conversation because we're both doing things. So I'll be like, yeah. let's just record an episode and we'll know we'll sit down. Yeah. And he, we went through this again yesterday and I was like, Paul, how you doing? He's like, fucking fine, mate never anything (laughs) wrong he he's like people ask me like why don't you like they asked me to come speak on mental health and like overcoming things and he goes I can't I don't feel anything I wasn't upset about it I'm not angry about it I don't have nightmares about it I'm solid I'm good and I sit there and I go how it ate you alive and it came back and then got Uh. another one there's gotta be something. And he's like, no, I'm good. Like, seriously, I I, I won't talk about it because uh, there's nothing to talk about. And I don't want to lie. I don't want to say, oh, I have nightmares. Like, he's like, he just won't do it. And so that's a, I'm glad you bring that up because Mm -hmm. there truly are people who have done, been through or experienced what most people, it really does damage at, but they're actually fine.
2: Right. Yeah. And it's important to believe them And a lot of, you know, I mean, I'm not a psychologist, so I have the luxury of looking at it without the, um, bias of assuming there's something wrong with people.
1: (laughs) I just assume,
2: (laughs) but like, you know, I, I think it's a good point because a lot of people, uh, really do like there's like my, you know, Jericho, but my buddy Jericho, he always says like, it's okay to be okay. You know, you don't have to look for the trauma. You don't have to look for something to be wrong or expect something to be wrong if it's not, if it's not really there. And some people are literally okay with going through hellfire and coming out. And they're like, dude, I want to go back and do that again. Or I'm sure he doesn't want to go back and have that experience again. However, doesn't mean that like, he didn't make it through it with like in an okay state, you know, And, and part of that is, how we're wired, how, you know, just who we are experiences. And, you know, there's a lot, I think that we don't understand about it too. I'm not going to say that I'm not going to claim that we really understand that well, why some people are okay and others aren't. Um, that's a whole other area of research, but like, I do think we should believe people when they say like, that's not it. They weren't traumatized. They were probably more affected by childhood shit than they were Mm -hmm. by time in the military, but um, that's a whole other thing. So, so PTS can be part of operator syndrome, but you often don't see it because people don't recollect a trauma associated with their time and service that they would attribute to all of the symptoms that they now feel.
1: Jericho's trauma is, is keeping it tucked. That's yeah. <laughs> yeah. that's, his,
2: that's... His, his compensatory mechanism for his that's... trauma. <laughs> he keeps did... <laughs> it Just... <laughs> <Yeah. sighs> It keeps exactly. everything tucked. It
1: stays tight. There's no... everything's,
2: everything's right in the world. As long as it's tucked. <laughs> I
1: know. I feel like I need to have him on the show now, just so I can have a conversation with him about tucked. Cause I'm always tucked. Yeah. I yeah. feel like it keeps, I, I'm not going to lie to you. And I feel like there's got to be something to this small tangent here. Every time I do anything important, yeah. I'm always wearing very tight pants and a tucked shirt. It's something about just being in that, like nothing can hurt me i'm i'm just
2: yeah oh no loose ends no, no loose. loose ends <laughs> yes i love i
1: love it I, I love it so
2: fucking much that's yeah. that's your hashtag his is keep it tucked yours is no loose ends. no
1: loose ends this is that's it i'm no loose and that makes me sound sketchy I like it. <laughs> it goes with the poltergeist vibe that Gay just got me rocking. Um, oh, okay, that's okay. That's fantastic. I'm glad. Thank you for kind of breaking that down because another thing we're seeing right now, at least I'm seeing, and maybe it's because I'm having different conversations with people, different doctors, uh, you know, different military members, but there is this weird thing going on now. There's PTSD, there's PTS, there's PT, PTSI, there's PTG. all of these now before we went. Yeah. Can you, is there a way that you can help us understand Mm -hmm. why there's so many?
2: Yeah, definitely. It's a really good point. I think it should be talked about because you do see all of the terminology kind of tossed around in the community Mm -hmm. and, um, it all started from PTSD. So post-traumatic stress disorder, That is an official diagnosis in the DSM and it has certain Mm -hmm. criteria that you have to meet in order to have the diagnosis, which I'll actually say because for those of you out there who are listening, who have either been told you have it or think you might have it, what I've discovered is a lot of times people aren't told or it's not explained to them what it even is. So Mm -hmm. for people to have it there has to be a qualifying traumatic event. So for example, like what I was saying with operator syndrome, a lot of people are like, no, I wasn't traumatized. There literally wasn't anything where I felt in fear of my life. So there has to be a traumatic event that either you directly experience or you witness or hear about happening to somebody else that then impacts you and makes you fearful either for their life or for your own. But it essentially has to have that qualifying nervous system reaction by that person where it's like feeling like a life or death situation. So that is the first thing. And then you have, you have to experience. So like anytime that happens to somebody, please know that like, you're going to have some fallout from it. If you experience a trauma, you're going to be a little bit off your game for a while, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's normal. It's not something that we should expect to just bounce back from the next day. So there's a time where you're kind of like, moving through it and overcoming it but where ptsd and that official diagnosis shows up is they say and i don't i'm not trying to say if this is right or wrong but they say after 30 days if the following symptoms don't subside you have the official diagnosis so the first is uh symptoms of intrusion so flashbacks or nightmares for example that are um activating doesn't have to be the exact event that happened, but things that are like just theme
1: related. Yeah. Theme related is a big one for them for that. It
2: bothers you, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's related to that. It bothers you. Uh, symptoms of avoidance is the other one. So if you know that you're going to be, uh, triggered or you're going to be uncomfortable in certain scenarios, you avoid living your life and, and doing those things because you you know that if you go do that thing or walk past that road or that's that place that you're going to be taken back into that moment. So symptoms of intrusion, symptoms of avoidance, hyperarousal. So the hypervigilance that people experience where they're always like focused, which is sometimes just a normal thing that people in that community experience because of their job. So, just because you're like hypervigilant doesn't mean you have PTSD. Uh, it can just be uh, a byproduct of your training, and that's okay, but it is a part of PTSD diagnosis. Um, and that also is like enhanced startle. So, if you tap somebody on the shoulder and they like flinch like that, that's your nervous system's just on edge. Um, and then the other is uh, changes in mood or cognition. So, memory, fogginess um, you're depressed, you're reactive, uh, emotionally, all of those types of things can show up. And those symptoms have to basically be present for more than 30 days and they have to be interfering with your life. So that's the overall diagnosis of PTSD. And that's what people use when they're saying, um, you know, like, like considering it for disability, for example, what the community started to do because PTSD was such a like dirty word and it was Mm -hmm. so thrown around. It was so associated so tightly with the veteran community where like, just so everybody knows, like a lot of people experience PTSD in the civilian world outside of the, anyone with military experience. So it's, it's a normal part, not normal, but it's like, a. uh, not infrequent part of, of life for many people. And it doesn't have, have to do with military service at all. So, uh, for, for many people. So it's not just associated with being, you know, veteran. <clears throat> so the, the community across the board veteran community, but I think just people in general who had that diagnosis didn't like the way that it felt. Cause it felt like they were, they were termed their diagnosis and all people saw was, saw was PTSD. And so they were like, yeah. I don't like the label. I'm going to change it. And I just want to call it post-traumatic stress because I'm not disordered. And that makes sense to me. I get it. But post-traumatic stress is kind of what you experience following the trauma that typically will resolve. So the post-traumatic stress is normal. And usually it will resolve following trauma at some period of time. When it doesn't, it gets classified as the disorder that can then be diagnosable. Um, But people still use it and it sort of destigmatizes the diagnosis. So those who are diagnosed with PTSD will still sometimes just call it PTS because it doesn't feel as heavy and it doesn't feel like such a uh, shitty label that people get when they're afraid that that's all you're going to see. And I totally understand that.
1: I catch myself doing that now because I understand there it's, it's like the, um, I had this conversation with uh, Casey Woods Mm -hmm. and, uh, it was the conversation of death by suicide or, Or you know, killed themselves kind of converse. So it's like changing the way that we look at things. Yeah. And PTSD is the one that like they use to medically release people. So that's what they medically released, like med board me on was that. And then once they do that though, it's it's much harder to get out of that. Like it you're that's that's on your medical record for, for a very long time because they consider it a disorder. I don't mm-hmm. know if I have a choice, but I would much rather the injury rather than the
2: disorder. Yeah. And so that's, that's next. That's the one that, and, and I get it. Like words matter and yeah. the way that people frame things, their own personal narrative matters. And it's important if a term doesn't feel right and it's making you feel stuck and like, you can change your story. You know, you don't have to like, hold on to a term just because somebody else gave it to you. Like Mm -hmm. if it doesn't fit, it doesn't fit. Right. So like that matters. And if you're changing the way that you refer to this, that's okay. uh, For your, for your own narrative, post-traumatic stress injury or PTSI is the way that people started kind of doing the same thing like PTS. And I've said this before, like you're not broken, you're injured and injuries can heal. And Mm -hmm you deserve to heal. Everybody deserves to heal. So a lot of people have been referring to it as post-traumatic stress injury as like an injury to your psyche, an injury to your nervous system, an injury to your emotional being. And that fits like, that makes sense to me too, with my understanding of the neuroscience behind it, as well as the spiritual emotional component of it and the psychological component of it. Post-traumatic stress injury does make sense where you have a traumatic event. And you have this stress response that is kind of a result of that, like psychological injury, really. And, um, I think a lot of people are reframing it to put it in those terms to make them feel like, like anything with an injury. If you go to P, you know, PT and, or, you know, rehab and you rehab it, then you can heal. And I like that because it sets people up to, um, think about it as an injury that can heal rather than a diagnosis you're stuck with forever. Right. So there's post-traumatic stress injury, and then there's PTG, which people refer to as post-traumatic growth. And I like this too because um, I am a firm believer that you know the growth only happens in uh during and after situations of adversity. And you have to be uncomfortable, you have to be challenged, you have to <laughs> feel some pain. And tr- trauma is all of those things. You can choose to let it derail you and defeat you, uh, which some people do. And you can choose to, and, or you can choose to um, let it be a crucible and like a fire that forges you into whatever you're going to be next. And it, it just depends on how you want to look at it, but you can take that, that horrific or horrible thing that happened to you and grow from it and become an even better version of yourself than prior to the trauma. And that's where PTG comes in. And I, I like that framework for people too.
1: I think it's such a great framework, especially when you're talking to somebody where they don't necessarily have a purpose again yet, where they don't necessarily can, they can't see the light yet. They're not there mm-hmm. yet. But if you if you frame it in the in this in the mindset of it's growth, this is going to be what's that saying? You need pressure to make diamonds like that, yeah, that, that right. whole, you know, you really do need something to happen to move people and it can break somebody or it can make somebody. And I've seen some of the biggest success stories come out of the worst, most horrific things. And I think it's yeah. because of that. I don't, it's again Paul. Yeah. Paul, Paul's just missing limbs and mm-hmm. he's cool with it, but god damn has he ever made that stuff work for him. Like yeah, look, he's he's taken it like he said, he's taken and it, it's how he handles it. everyone's gonna have a bad day. But it's right, right. It's how you use the adversity. And I think that's uh I do like those those last two PTSI and PTG as as better examples and ways to have conversations with individuals about their healing. It's it just feels um it doesn't feel icky. Right. Yeah, I get it. Medical, that's a medical term. Um (laughs) you you didn't learn that in school. I'll give you that one's for you. But you with all of these, with all of these different diagnoses and these ways to look at healing and TBIs, it's it's fascinating to see you go down the path you have with other healing modalities. Mm -hmm. And that's really where heroic hearts kind of came in for you and your integration coaching and things like that. Um, however comfortable you are talking about, you know, psychedelics, I would, I would love to hear how you got into that.
2: Yeah. Um, actually it was through a friend who, um, gosh, this was back in, I don't know. I'm fairly new to the, to the whole thing. Uh, 2018, I think is when it happened where he went on a retreat with heroic hearts project and, um, was talking about ayahuasca and being down in Costa Rica. And at the time I was like, what the fuck is, ayahuasca? <laughs> right. what <laughs> I-, I-, I had no idea. And being like the neuroscience nerd. And he's telling me all these things about what the experience is like and how it changed him. And I'm like, this is this is bullshit. There's no way. But like <laughs> I saw the changes in him afterwards. And I was like, whoa, actually, I like this is a person who um like it, it was so clear to me how it had shifted his perspective on things, it was so hard. You you couldn't have missed it. And I was like, okay, there's definitely something to this. And so I started diving into the research. And as soon as I got into ayahuasca and understood that. It was a psychedelic and what components contributed to the psychedelic properties and then started diving into all the other psychedelics. I was like, oh my God, there is a proverbial shit ton of data out there to now it's not like full on, you know, decades of, of research and clinical trials, but there's clinical trials and research around it far more than I would have expected that I was like, holy shit, there is enough out there that why are people not shoot like shouting at, at, about this from rooftops? Because sure, we don't have anything definitive to really say about it in human use and who it's gonna benefit for sure. But like all of the evidence points to really, really positive and impactful changes for people who are struggling with any kind of nervous system injury or damage, whether it's TBI or post-traumatic stress injury or whatever it might be. And, um, the more I started to understand all of this, the more I was like, this is really, this could really help the veteran community. Like this is huge. And I reached out to her heroic arts project at the time and was like, Hey, you know, I don't know anything about you guys or what you're doing and barely know anything about psychedelics now, but like, if there's anything I can do to help please let me know. Or if I can send people your way, I don't know if you're hurting for participants or whatever, but like, I know a lot of people who could benefit from this. And they were like, Hey, let's have a conversation. And then when they found out about my background, they were like, will you be our director of research? And I was like, Holy shit. uh, Yeah. That would be incredible. (laughs) Let's do it. Um, And they invited me on a retreat so I could see like witness what was going on for people and have a firsthand account. So when I spoke about it, I was knowledgeable of like actually how the process worked. And, um, he asked at the time, Jesse asked at the time, he's like, do you want to participate too? And I was terrified because like, I had, I'm like the dare kid who never went and did drugs as a kid. Like my older <laughs> brothers did all of the drugs under the sun. And I was all always of like, the drugs. <laughs> I was always too afraid because I was such a brain nerd. I was like, oh, this is bad for you. <laughs> like, <laughs> like dare really fucked me up. Um, <laughs> But like the more I researched about it, the more I realized one, it's totally not going to harm your brain, but two, I could benefit from where I was at in my own life and uh, wanting to have my own healing from a lot of the traumas that I've experienced and a lot of the shit that I have been through in my own life and um, really kept close to the heart and kept quiet about it was always like, you know, suffer in silence kind of thing. And I was like, you know, this is something that I think could be really helpful for me too. So I went and had an experience with uh, a group down in Peru and my mind was blown. It was my own personal experience, but also witnessing the changes of the guys that I was with and everything was just so powerful that I was like, you know, this is, there's really something to this and I want to help. And I want to push this narrative and I don't care if it's taboo, I don't care if people are going to look at me weird and I'm never gonna be able to work in government anything ever again like I don't you know it was like I just don't care because this is too important so I started talking about it and um, eventually got into integration coaching with heroic hearts project as well wanting to help the veterans who go through the program set themselves up for success getting prepared and then integrating their experiences on the back end as well and uh, over the years, just kind of got got more involved in that and and just kind of pushed as much as I could out there to, to folks. And as you see now in the social media arena, I mean, it's become more of a normal topic of conversation, which is fantastic.
1: Mm-hmm. It's a huge conversation. It's like the conversation being had. And I think it's great. Yeah. I think I always preface when I say, oh, I think ayahuasca is great with if you aren't on SSRIs and you do the proper prep work and you do it in proper yeah. sentence setting and all of those things, because there is, again, it is becoming the thing that people are talking about and all trying and experimenting with, which is incredible. It's mm-hmm. just making sure that they realize that there's a real reality to this stuff and that it is very potent, very powerful. Mm-hmm. And it is, it does come with, um, I don't say risk, but it does come with, if you're not doing it properly, it can be dangerous. And so yeah, I always, absolutely. I, I was lead with that just because I never need someone to come back and be like, yes, I was safe. Totally. And I'm like, yeah, well, I said it was safe for me.
2: Yeah, right.
1: <laughs> like make your own choices, people. <laughs> be your own people, people, that's, yeah. Yeah, be your own selves. Um, so that's interesting to see how it affected you. Did you, what did you find in terms of experience-wise, was something you didn't expect and something that you learned from it that you've taken forth and have you done it since?
2: Mm-hmm. Yes. To, to all that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, man, there's so many things that I took away from it. Um, I think it, for me personally, cause my, everybody's traumas are different. Everybody's you know background is different for me personally. You know, I grew up with the kind of mentality of uh, I, you know, I don't need people. I can do everything alone. I need to, I need to do everything alone. I need to prove that I'm like capable of not meeting anyone. And also emotions are the devil and I don't want to feel a thing except for anger. Maybe, uh, you know, like it was just kind of like, you don't express that in front of people. Emotions are not something that you uh, allow other people to see, or it's, it's just inappropriate. And it's like the, that whole, the whole, you know, Uh, keep a lid on it type of mentality that I grew up with. So um, for me going into it, I had uh, a really hard time because it requires you, like, you do need help. Like I was so, the medicine was so strong that I was literally like, I can't fucking move. Like I'm literally like, I need help. Like I'm squashed into the earth, like (laughs) unable to move, you know, like, um, and had so many emotions come up and I caught myself not wanting to express them or feel them because Mm -hmm. I didn't want to disturb other people. It was like, no, 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 you're going to, you're going to be, you're going to make a scene. You're going to have, you know, have the, whatever you can't take up space and be inappropriate and have this moment. I was like choking back tears. And there was one moment where the shaman could sense it and he came over and he's like, give me your hand. And I was just, I took like all my energy to reach out and like grab his hand. And he pulled out this, like, like the most primal animalistic scream. That was so, so much pain. It just was like, I caught myself like, who is that? Like, what is that voice? I didn't even, it didn't even seem like me. It seemed like it was some somebody or somewhere else. And it was like, the most intense thing I've ever experienced. And that opened the floodgates for me. But afterwards, all the guys came up and they were like, I was struggling so hard and I wanted to cry so bad. And I couldn't, the tears wouldn't come. And that's when you cried. And it was like, all of the group was like, we were all struggling and feeling each other's energy somehow. And Mm -hmm that was so transformative for all of us like this work i think to answer your question one of the things that i took away from it is like healing is meant to be done in community in partnership in relationship like we aren't supposed to be crying at home alone by ourselves and not ever letting anyone see those parts of us like we're supposed to have like hold space for each other and allow each other to feel the things that we've been choking back for decades so we can move through it and transform it. And that's supposed to be done as a, as a group, as a community. And to me, that was such a strong indication of like, we've got to be better about making it okay to one, have your experience uh, but to like, rely on people and build community. Like, we've got to stop isolating and, and staying alone and, and being, pretending like we're okay when everybody's like, how you doing? Like, oh, I'm fucking fine. And you're like, literally not, I'm like falling apart. Like, we've got to stop that too. So all of those things were really powerful for me to, to take away from that. In addition to my own, like, deeper specific realizations about my life and all that. But like, that was like a big overarching theme for that. Um, and that held true in the other experiences that I've had since.
1: And is it just ayahuasca that you, that you've dabbled in or do you, do you go? Ayahuasca and,
2: and mushrooms, psilocybin. Yeah. Those are the two that, um, feel like, I don't know. There's something about those two that have always resonated with me. And like, granted, I haven't gone out like my brothers and tried everything under the sun. Maybe right. I will someday, but I also kind of feel like, to your point, you've got to kind of, you got to want it. You've got to be called to it. Like you shouldn't go do things just to go do them. It could be a recipe for disaster. It so, is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So to me, I've never really been called to anything else. And, um, as an integration coach, I always caveat that with like, hey, I haven't done X, but like, here's what I know about it. Here's what I've experienced from listening to other people talk about it. Your experience is going to be unique anyway. So even if I had done it, it, is it all that much more helpful for me to tell you about my my journey because yours will be different. But um, I do always caveat that just so people are aware of like where it's coming from, whether it's like fully experiential from me or if it's just based in what I understand about it but yeah ayahuasca and psilocybin for sure the the two but I also feel like I'm in a place now where I love plant medicines and psychedelics and I will always be a proponent but like I'm I'm good like I don't want I don't feel this need to continue to do more and dig deeper like I have other tools for that now that Mm -hmm. I don't need the medicines to get me there if that makes sense
1: you're able to get there on your own with things I'm assuming like meditation and breath work and yoga and all of that grounding, all of the Mm -hmm. journaling, all of that. That's what Mm -hmm. I was going to ask you next. I mean, I'm going to have you on again, because I know we only have so much time left, but I want to get into things, um, maybe next time a little bit about TBI and Mm -hmm. psychedelic use, because I do. And what I'm starting to learn is that there are certain psychedelics that burn too hot for TBI is and inflammation is it just it adds to the inflammation and I think that's another thing that people don't quite understand is not every psychedelic is good for people with a TBI. Mm-hmm. You know, we've had these conversations recently with a few different doctors about, you know, five um, MEO or um, what's another one like MDMA therapy? They burn right. really hot in the brain.
2: Mm-hmm. They're
1: not ideal.
2: Right. Yeah. When you have a brain that's already stressed and especially in the like early stages of TBI, where you're really trying to go into like full repair mode and you have a high metabolic rate, the last thing that you need to do is to put something like MDMA in there, where it is, there's a lot of ex- excitatory activity that's causing an even higher metabolic rate. And so you're really not helping yourself. And again, this isn't, this has not been studied. So I'm, I'm speaking about it from what I understand about the drug mechanisms and what I understand about TBI, not Not because I've seen studies on this, which somebody should go do these studies, but um, yeah, I mean, it doesn't make sense to me to to cause more work for your brain when it's already overworked and trying to heal. And the MDMA in particular can be something that really is uh, challenging and causing more work for your brain to try to overcome the healing. So it just, yeah, it really does depend, but that's a great point you bring up.
1: Um also so for you because you do have different healing modalities that you use what have you found to be most successful for you in in consistency and what's really worked from a long-term benefit standpoint with you
2: Yeah it's a great question um I know people aren't going to love this particular answer but oh, it get is over it. it is true for me um honestly like I have a really good somatic therapist who I have worked with um and has been able to and when I say somatic therapist she we don't talk about stuff we she will start talking about something and then we go straight into the body and it's feelings and it's I'm I'm not just feeling my feelings but I'm feeling my body and like I'm feeling old shit come up that has been stuck inside for freaking ever which is what happens during psychedelic you know when you're in a in a journey or ceremony too but like this is something that like I do in partnership with her because I need someone else to help hold space for me while I go to these places that are like not okay for me to be in alone so I work with her a lot she's been incredibly helpful but I also do that kind of work alone in meditation where I can go touch in and access certain things and I can like feel into it And then pull back. And it's, you know, like, I don't always want to go deep. People are like, oh, I just want to like crush my trauma and do the hardest things. And it's like, yeah, that's not always helpful. Like sometimes you need to touch in, maybe feel a little bit, see what's going on and then pull back because it's not the right time or setting for you to like take that on by yourself. So I do a lot of that in meditation, um, somatic based meditation practices really kind of get me grounded in my body and really allow for me to like explore what, uh, stuff I've been honestly like keeping under lock and key, keeping like stuck and not ready to look at, look at and compartmentalized. And it just gets stored in your body in various ways, like tension, uh, sore muscles, injuries, things like that, that just kind of like hold, hold the, the tension and the pain of these like unfelt, unfelt or unlipped experiences. So the meditation really helps a lot. Um, honestly, like nature, nature therapy is my jam. I go out there and like, I mean, I have like cried and screamed and done all the things on mountaintops, on beaches in the woods. Like I have had like the full human experience out in nature because it's something that like you tap back into that primal part of yourself. And Mm -hmm. the feeling part of being human, which we shut off and that's the real meat of what it is to be human is to be a, a feeling being. So nature helps me remember that too. So I get out in nature, cardio, always like trail runs, mountain biking, um, anything that helps me connect and just kind of, uh, get like into this like flow state, um, is also super helpful. Yoga is something else. It's like moving meditation for me. Um, really connecting to the breath. And then of course, there's, there's always breath work um, that really taps in. A lot of people do like holotropic breath work to tap into like psychedelic-like states. Um, and that can be really effective too. That's not really what I do. I do different types of breathing practices um, really to, to just regulate my nervous system, but that's super effective too.
1: What's, a, what's an example of one that you do to regulate your nervous system?
2: Uh, one thing that I, I do and I always recommend to everybody that I work with is called resonant breathing. And it's basically uh, the, the breathing pattern that is best utilized to maximi- maximize heart rate variability and promote parasympathetic nervous system activity. And for most people, it's going to be something around um, like a five to six second inhale, followed by a six to seven second exhale. Um, and there's no breath holding and it's rhythmic. So you do the five to six and then the six to seven and then five to six. You just continuously link them together. There's no pausing. And that rhythm, for some reason, seems to be the appropriate rhythm to sync up with the other rhythms of your body that allow your heart rate uh, variability to increase and maximize and promote parasympathetic activity. And if you have, a really good heart rate monitor and uh, a really good app like Elite HRV is a good one. You can actually get your detailed resonant breath rate with those. So it's specific to you, but most people are somewhere in that range. So even if you don't know uh, or you don't have those devices and don't want to get them, just remember that and do it. I mean, honestly, do it as often as you can. Um, But I would say even just five minutes in the morning or if you find yourself getting super anxious and amped up, If you find yourself being hypervigilant, if you find your, and you don't want to be, and you find yourself being like really amped, that's, that's a way to kind of immediately tap into your regulation and, and promote more of a parasympathetic state.
1: That's a great one. I'm glad you bring that up because I've had incidents where I've actually dealt with cops on a personal basis where one pulled me over for profiled the shit out of me. He admitted it. It was great. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was good. I was getting, um, I think I was getting, I was getting wine on a Wednesday morning at, at nine 30. <laughs> he just um, thought you were like
2: already drunk and like replenishing yeah, your no, t-
1: totally did. Wow. And I, I came out in like a cute sundress with these big breech sunglasses, gold <laughs> huge yeah. nails and a nice car. What I was getting it for was one of our employees birthday. But okay. anyway, my point is he came to me and he was He was, you could feel his energy from like far away and I get it, but God damn, if you come to somebody with that energy, it's going to be met with a certain type of reaction. So long and short was, I brought him into the office and was talking to him about breath work and he had no clue, no idea what that meant. He's like, well, I do yoga once in a while. I was like, that's not it. It's not the same But what a great example of something that somebody can do who's on the job, who's a paramedic, who's a firefighter, who's a police officer, who's outside the wire. You can bring yourself down with something as simple as five to six inhales, six to seven exhales, and doing it rhythmically for five minutes. That is so easy, Mm -hmm. and yet it is never, ever taught, and I'm so glad you did
2: Yeah. Good. Well, and it's, I think it's better than box breathing. Box breathing is always what's taught and this is it. They all have their purpose, but this is definitely better for like just kind of taking the edge off, coming down a little bit and not being so amped up if you're going to go do something that is stressing you out. So, yeah.
1: Oh, I think that's, I think that's great. And I, I, I'm very happy that you, uh, you shared that with us. Thank you. But I know we have to go and I know we've run out of time. So, you know, We'll just have to have you on again and again and again. And I I know for a fact, there is going to be a ton of questions and people are going to want to hear so much more from you. So in the meantime, while they're waiting for you to come back on again, where do they find, where do they find everything in this great Instagram page that they can actually learn about their brain
2: from? Um, thank you. Uh, first of all, um, yeah, I I think probably just Instagram doc Pate, um, D O C and then a period. And then P A T E is the easiest way to find me. I'm probably going to get off of some other social, like I have Facebook and LinkedIn and some other things, but I just, i kind of don't really want to use those right now um and eventually eventually i'll have a website again i took it down but i'll probably put that back up soon um and then email if anybody wants to reach out it's kate at docpate.com and the docpate is all one word so either way um yeah feel free send full send on the messages and the questions
1: oh well i appreciate that and thank you for your uh your vulnerability and talking to us about some of the things you've been through. It's always great to have people that are willing to be very honest and very raw. It helps others and it really does make a difference. So thank you.
2: Yeah. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. And as always, it's so much fun to see you and and connect. I know.
1: I can't wait for the next time already. All right, everyone that's doc. We'll see y'all next week.